Amen. James chapter four is, is where we're gonna start. I just wanna read the text over us as uh, we get ready to jump in. This is what it says. James, remember, he's writing to the scattered church, these people that he loves so much. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle deep within you? You're, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and sometimes when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Verse four, you adulterous people. <laughs> it's like, hell, don't you just wish James would come out and say what he's thinking? He's like, you, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, uh, therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. That is why the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Now, I don't know what your experience is like when you sit down and you open the scriptures. You know, there's some mornings where I sit down and open it up and, and I read a passage of scripture and I go, wow, that seems so relevant, encouraging, clear as day, I know what to do about it. There's other times where I open it up and I know it's truthful, but I'm not exactly sure what to do with it. Then there's times when it's confusing. And this week when I was reflecting on these six short verses from James chapter four, I had all of those feelings. There's parts of it that seem really clear. There's parts of it that feel a little bit confusing. There's parts of it that I'm like, okay, what do we do with it? And, and yet the more I just kind of dug into this passage with the help of the Holy Spirit, I, went, I, I, I walked away going, man, I don't know if there's a more relevant passage of scripture for the moment that we find ourselves in. Now, I know that's maybe a bit of an oversell, sell, but um, when I read it, I go, man, James is like speaking into something because here's the heart of what he's getting at is he's gonna say, hey, this is what it looks like to live as peacemakers when you find yourself in the middle of deep conflict. Now, I don't know if you've paid any attention to what's happening in the world. I don't know if you've seen what's happening uh, between nations of the world right now that are at war, if you're recognizing what's happening in our nation, the division between left and right, the division between races, the division and, and, and the opposition, uh, uh, the fighting that you see within our nation, within uh, neighbor to neighbor, within households, between husbands and wives and family members and friends. Like, oh, we, we live in a season, we're living in a moment where conflict is just like bubbling over. In fact, I was talking to one of my good friends earlier this week and I was just kind of asking how he's been in this season and how he's been connected with family. And we got to the end of our time together and he said, man, it's been tough to connect with family. And he said, and we're not even gonna get together this year for Thanksgiving. And I said, oh, is that because of COVID? He said, no, it's because of the election. <laughs> and I was like, oh. He's like, if we get together for Thanksgiving, he said, we may never get together again. And maybe some of you are feeling that. He just goes, there's such contention, there's, there's so much opposition that's happening, he said, well, we don't even know what to do about it. Because the reality is when, when conflict rises uh, within us as human beings, we typically respond in one of a few ways. And I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, One way that we as humans respond when conflict arises is we fight. And so if somebody comes at us, we come at them even stronger. Some of you are fighters. Some of you aren't fighters, you are fleers. Like the moment conflict comes, you run. You're like, how do I get out of the conversation? How do I get out of the room? How do I get out of Thanksgiving with my family? How do I get away from wherever the conflict is? Some of you fight, some of you flee. Some of you freeze in conflict. You know, when something happens, you go like, I'm just gonna stay still. Maybe no one will see me, I won't speak. Maybe no one will notice. You know, when you're at the dinner table and somebody starts talking about politics, all of a sudden you just go quiet. You're like, maybe they'll quit. 
Um, I, I kind of take a different approach. Uh, my wife, Sydney, and my boys would attest to this. Whenever there's conflict, I'm like, maybe I can joke my way out of this. Maybe I can make Sydney laugh. Maybe I can make my opponent like smile. And what I've found is that works about 30% of the time. Uh, the other 70% of the time, it makes it 100% worse. And so uh, Sid can attest to that. That actually happened on Friday of this week. Sydney and I were in a moment of intense fellowship. Our boys were over, they were eating uh, their lunch, and my son Jack, who's eight years old, uh, he looked at his brothers, and uh, as Sydney and I were having this conversation, he said, okay guys, in three, two, one, dad's gonna try to make mom laugh. And he was like right on the cue, like because he knows like when conflict arises, my tendency is, hey, I'm gonna try to alleviate this reality. And I, I love this because James, uh, at the beginning of James chapter four, He's gonna say, hey, how do we, as followers of Jesus, deal with that thing that is overrunning our nation, that is overrunning our families, that is overrunning our relationships, that is even threatening to overrun the church, this thing called conflict? He said, how do we deal with it? Not by fighting or fleeing or freezing or even joking your way out of it, but how do we bring to bear all of the resources of heaven into this critical moment of conflict? You know, I love what Jesus says. Matthew chapter five, verse nine, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are those that affirm peace or celebrate peace or read about peace or like peace. He says, blessed are those that what? Make peace. He says, because they'll be called children of God. Because here's what Jesus understood. Jesus understood that there was something core to our identity as his children when it comes to conflict. And so like I look at the next three weeks, I know there's some of you that are going, man, I can't wait till we get past the election. I look at the next few weeks and I go, I'm excited about the next three weeks, not because of the conflict, but because I believe it presents an incredible opportunity for followers of Jesus filled with the Spirit of God to demonstrate another way. Yes. And James is gonna say, hey, there is another way. Like when that conversation comes up, when, 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 the, when the conflict comes up, you don't have to fight it, you don't have to run from it, you don't have to bury your head in the sand. He says, you get to bring all of the resources of heaven to bear in that reality just the way that Jesus does. And James, here in chapter four, he's gonna lay this out for this church that he loves. He's gonna lay it out for you and I. He's gonna say, this is how you do it. Now. Here's what I want you to notice as we go through this. James is not just gonna call us to a higher level of living. He's gonna actually give us some tangible things to hold on to. And, and today, we're actually really only gonna deal with the first two of these things. And next week, I'm gonna come back and we're gonna deal with the third one. But James is gonna say, if you wanna be a peacemaker, it's gonna require you to do the hard work of searching your heart, of fixing your eyes, and then of bending your knee to King Jesus. He's like, if, if, if you wanna be a peacemaker, not just somebody that affirms peace or celebrates peace or tweets about peace, but somebody that actually makes peace, it's gonna require you to do the hard work of searching your heart, of fixing your eyes, and then of bending your knee to King Jesus. And here's what I, I just kinda of wanna warn us of. As we get into James chapter four, there's gonna be this temptation for us to read this and go, oh man, that's good. I really wish my wife would hear this. Or man, that's really good. I wish my next door neighbor would hear this or my friend or my boss would hear this. And I just wanna just kinda of put this out there. Anytime the word of God begins to step on your toes or on my toes and we begin to think how good it would be for somebody else to hear it, that's probably the Holy Spirit saying you need to stop and really take this in for yourself. It's one of those escape mechanisms that we use to get, and James is gonna say, hey listen, in a world of conflict, what does it look like for you to live as a peacemaker? And it's gonna start in this place of us really knowing how to, with vulnerability, search our hearts before the Holy Spirit. Look at James chapter four, verse one. This is what he says. He starts by asking a question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
Now, let's just stop for a minute because James knows that all of us actually have an answer in our mind to that difficult question. James is like, what is it that causes fights among the nations? What is it that causes fights in your marriage? What causes fights uh, between you and your parents and you and your children? What causes fights? And if we're really honest, let's pretend you're not in an at-home gathering right now with eight other Christians or you're not uh, with a family doing church. Like, let's pretend like you were just gonna answer honestly. All of us would answer that question by saying, well, here's what causes fights and quarrels. It's that idiot that I'm in a fight with. They're the problem. They're the reason. It's, it's that nation. It's that system. I go, have you ever noticed how any person you're in an argument with is automatically the dumbest human that's ever lived? Now, you're probably more emotionally aware. You're, you're more socially inept than actually saying that out loud. But internally, you're just going, man, this person that, I, that I'm in an argument with on Twitter, they're an idiot. This person on the other side of the political aisle, they're an idiot. (laughs) There's this temptation in us to look at our opponent and to see them as as though they're just the stupidest person that has ever walked the face of the planet. Because here's what conflict does to us. Conflict blinds us to our flaws and it blinds us to our enemies' strengths and, and beauties. And that's a dangerous combination. Like when you get in a place of conflict, you can only see what's good about you and what's bad about them. And I'm just telling you, that's gonna go really bad. It's just not gonna work. And James, I'm just telling you, he's gonna step all over our toes. He's gonna say, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And you start to think about it, you go, "Uh, yeah, well, if only my husband would just get on board with putting the dishes where they're supposed to go, or if only my kids would just do, or if only, and James would go, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, that's not the way that it works in the kingdom of God. Conflict doesn't originate somewhere out there abstractly. He says it originates right in here in your human heart, and if you want to live as a peacemaker, it begins with you doing the difficult work of searching your own heart. Look back at verse one. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle what? Within you. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, that word within is so important. He says, all the stuff you see happening externally, it was given birth internally within your human heart. What's happening in the world? What's happening in the world was birthed in the brokenness of the sin-infested human heart. It doesn't mean that there aren't systems that are propping that up. It doesn't mean that there aren't things externally that are putting gasoline on those fires, but he says you've got to understand the actual source of conflict. It's internal. And so he starts by looking at his church and he says, hey, in this season of conflict, he says, you've got to be willing as a follower of Jesus to do the difficult work. Instead of seeing how the other political party is all jacked up and wrong, instead of seeing how your spouse is all jacked up and wrong or your roommates are all jacked up and wrong, he says, you start, if you want to be a peacemaker, by looking internally with the help of the Holy Spirit and recognizing the battles that are raging within you. Now, James, he's going to give us a glimpse into some of these battles, and I'll just tell you, every one of these, they step on my toes. I know they're going to step on some of your toes, and this is the problem with TV churches. It'd be really easy to just turn the channel. I don't like that, you know. But just, like, let's sit under what the Holy Spirit's trying to say to us. And this is not an exhaustive list of what causes conflict in the world, but James is going to say some of these internal battles lead to external friction and conflict. And the first one is this battle of unmet desires. The battle of unmet desires. He's going to give us five. Let's look at the first one out of verse two. He says, you desire something, but you do not have it. And so you you fight and argue. Remember right before this, he says, what causes these fights and argue? He's beginning to name. He says, you have this thing inside of you. You long for something. And I want you to notice this. James does not call desires bad. 
To be a human being is to have desires. Most of those desires were put there in you by God. It's what Solomon got after in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He says, within every human being, eternity has been set. In other words, from now until the time you see Jesus face to face, your life will be marked by unmet desires. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter how well you plan out your life. There will be things that you want that no matter how hard you work, you just won't get them. You may not get the husband, you may not get the children, you may not get the career, you may not get the promotion, you may not get that second investment property, you may not get the beach house, you may not get the, uh, the, the children, um, uh, the grown-up children and the relationship that you imagine, what you wanted. Um, there will be things that you long for that you don't get. And James is not stepping on that. He's not saying, oh, you evil people for having desires. He's saying, no, be careful of what those unchecked desires do in your heart. He says, when they begin to grow, when they begin to overtake you, that internal struggle of not having what you want, it's what the, the Proverbs say, is that hope deferred makes what? The heart grow sick. He's gonna say, when there's things in you that are unmet, you gotta be careful what it does to you. He says, that's one of the battles, that internal battle when those desires are unmet, sometimes it spills out into our relationships. It causes conflict. He's going to give us a second battle. He says it's not just the battle of unmet desires. He's going to say it's also the battle of unfair circumstances. Look back at verse 2. He says, you desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight about it. So James says it's not just the battle of not having what you want. It's also the battle of somebody else having the thing that I think that I, I should have. It's this battle of unfair circumstances. He says, you know, it's not just that you don't have the job. It's that somebody else has the job you want. It's not just that you're not married. It's that somebody else is married or has the marriage that you want. It's not just that you don't have kids. It's that somebody else does. It's not just that you don't have the promotion or the success or the comfort or the status. It's that somebody else has it. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you'll just be in the presence of somebody. They don't even know that you're in a fight, but in your mind, you're in a fight with them. James says this is what happens. It's not just that you have an unmet desire. It's that you find yourself in a circumstance where somebody has what you wish you had and it leads to all sorts of external conflict. Guys, we see this interpersonally, we see this familial, we see this nation to nation, we see this within nations. He says, where do these fights come from? He says, they start within you, these battles, unmet desires, unfair circumstances. Third battle that he names right here in the text is, is the battle of unspoken expectations. Look at the end of verse two. He says, or some of you, you have this battle because you don't have what you want because you have not asked God. Now, have you ever noticed like in human relationships that when you try to hold somebody accountable for something you never told them you're, told them you're gonna hold them accountable for, how's that go? <laughs> it, it is always terrible. Like anytime I expect one of my friends to come through uh, for something that I never even told them uh, mattered to me, it's like they're always gonna let me down. And it's interesting here because James is gonna say we have that tendency to even do this with God. Not because he doesn't know, but, but there's something intrinsically important to our relationship with God where we just learn how to share our hearts. God, here's what I want. Here's what I need. Here's what I'm wrestling with. And James says some of you internally are having this battle between you and God because God has not come through in the thing that you've never talked to him about. And because you're all turned up on the inside, because you're all messed up on the inside over this unmet expectation, it's spilling out in conflict. He says, what causes these fights? Sometimes it's unmet desire. Sometimes it's unfair circumstances. Sometimes it's unspoken expectations. He gives us a fourth one. He says, sometimes it's ungodly motives. He keeps going, look at this in verse three. He says, or some of you, you ask for things, but you don't receive what you've asked from for God because you ask with wrong motives. 
in order that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You know, I've told this story before, but I remember right after Sydney and I got married, we're in our early 20s, and we had this opportunity to invest in something that had it worked, we would have made a lot of money, could have retired, honestly, in our early 20s, never worked again, would have been super, super rich, and and a spoiler alert, did not work out. And so we we emptied our really small savings account at the time. I'm like praying, fasting, like, Lord, move the mountains, like, let this work. And I remember getting the phone call the day that I found out this did not work. And I just felt like an idiot, and I was heartbroken. And I remember walking around the block, talking with God about this. I'm like, God, if only you would have given us that money, I would have given the world missions and would have helped the poor. And God's like, bro, you would have bought a beach house. You would have, you would have retired. And have you ever done that where you ask God, maybe for something good, but you ask him for something good for, for false motives, for bad motives, for bad things? And he says, man, this, is, this leads to all kinds of conflict within us, and it spills out into the relationships around us. He says, what causes these fights among you? It's these unmet desires, it's these unfair circumstances, it's these, un, uh, it's these unspoken expectations, it's these ungodly motivations. And last but not least that James is gonna mention, and he could have given so many more, number five, he says, it's this battle within of unholy alliances. You make these unholy alliances, you make these agreements with things that God has clearly told us he's against. And when you make that agreement, maybe it's a place of, uh, of, of moral decay within you. Maybe you know that God is against that, that area of immorality, but you just see what's going on in the culture and you go, you know, the culture's just shifted. It is what it is. Or, or maybe you've made this unholy alliance with, with, with the way that God deals with resources. And you go, I, I, I know that he wants me to be generous to the poor, but I'll do that in the future. I, I, let me just step on everybody's toes real quick. What's this look like? I think in a political season like the one that we're in, Virtually every follower of Jesus I speak to is in some way really prone to making an unholy alliance with the ways of the world. Real quick, look at what James is going to say, verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? So therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, that's super confusing. Let's unpack this for just a second. In John 3, 16, Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and this is, what, this is what he says. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He gets into the next verse, verse 17, and Jesus says, this is Jesus preaching. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And so you hear Jesus talking about the world, and he goes, man, look at how much God loves the world. And then you hear James talking about the world, and James goes, if you're a friend of the world, you're in big trouble. So like, what is it? And I, I want you to notice something. The Bible does the same thing that you and I do every day in our interpersonal communication. We use one word to describe two totally different realities. And I could give so many examples of this. You take the word sick, you know, like if, it can mean either thing. So if I'm talking about, hey, my kids are sick with the flu. Like, you know that's a bad thing. If I'm talking to Joshua Soloway, and he says, oh man, that was sick. I know he means it's a good thing. It's what the young people say these days. The same word, totally different. I know young people don't actually say that, and so, um, but, I'm not, but I'm not young, so I don't have to pretend I am. Same word, totally different meanings, right? And you see this in the scripture. Sometimes the world is used to describe the people that God spilled his blood for because he loves them so much. And sometimes the word world is used to describe the systems of thought, the powers, and the 
principalities that have set themselves up against the ways of God, mm -hmm. against the ways of his holiness. Mm -hmm. And the way that James uses that word world here, he's describing any way of thought, any system of thinking, any power or principality that is actively opposing the ways of God. And James is gonna say, whenever we make unholy alliances, whenever we get comfortable with any way of doing life, with any way of thinking, with any way of living that Jesus is actively opposed to, it's gonna lead us to great conflict. And so let's, let's step on some toes here politically. See, it, the political rhetoric of the world is that, you know what, the, the ends is always worth the means. And so, you know, we, we know Jesus doesn't want us to slander others, but if it, it's really important that we get the right person in the White House or in the Senate. And so if I just need to say some negative things to get the job done, I'm gonna say it because I believe God needs to work through this. And, and Jesus would go, no, I don't ever want you to use this, the, the weapons of the world to bring about the kingdom of God. You fundamentally can't do it. Mm. You can't tear somebody down to put somebody in place that's there in your mind to bring about the kingdom of God. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And James is just gonna stomp, stomp all over our toes here. He says, you cannot make an unholy alliance where you break rank with the kingdom of God in order to bring, he says, every time you do that, Every time you do that, it's gonna bring about conflict in the world. And so James is gonna say, hey, here's the deal. I want you to stop the world's at conflict, the nation's at conflict, your marriage is in conflict, even your church is in conflict. I want you to stop, and before you see everything that's wrong with them, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what's wrong with you. Mm. And sometime this morning or this week to just go, okay, God, are there any unmet desires? Are there any unfair circumstances? Are there any unspoken expectations? Are there any places where I've used ungodly motives to try to twist your arm to get what I want? Are there any areas where I've made unholy alliances? Just ask the Holy Spirit those questions. Sit with the piece of paper as long as you need to sit. Sit with the journal, go for a walk, and listen to what the Lord says because James says, until you deal with the battle that's within you, you will never be able to, to put water on the battles that are raging all around you. You can't live as a peacemaker when you're losing the battle within you. He says you search your heart. But I love this, James doesn't stop with searching your heart because he knows that the answer, the anecdote for a, uh, for a conflict-ridden world is not greater self-awareness, it's greater God-awareness. Knowing yourself is important, but having a clear view of God is like so much more important. And I love this because James is gonna say, hey, if you wanna live as a peacemaker, you search your heart, you do the hard work. But he says, then you fix your eyes on King Jesus. And I love this. Look at verse five. He says, or do you think the scriptures say without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell within you? And he gives more grace. He gives more grace than you could ask or imagine. I'm just telling you, I wish we had... Uh, three hours to stop and wrestle with what does it mean for God to be jealous for your heart? It's such a powerful image. In fact, it's such a powerful image, most of us aren't even comfortable with this idea. But it's this image of a husband that is longing for, that is longing for his bride that has gone wayward. It's a God that goes, man, humanity is mine. Humanity does not belong to the devil. <laughs> 
Humanity does not belong to the schemes of the world. And I know it is, humanity is battle entrenched. It is sin soaked. You get this image in the scriptures of God raising up saying, hey, I'm coming for my bride. I am jealous for her heart. When he's looking at the church, James is saying, hey, Jesus longs for his bride. And I want you to notice what happens when Jesus shows up for this battle infested bride of a church. These people that are entrenched in conflict, he shows up and what does he say in, in, in verse six? He shows up with grace. Grace, I don't know if you even know what grace means. Maybe it's too churchy of a word. My definition of grace is grace is God's undeserved, unlimited kindness towards sinful people. God shows up, he jealously pursues. Like what does he do to these battle entrenched, sin-soaked people? He jealously pursues them and when he catches up to them, he doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't come with a bunch of I told you so's. He doesn't crush conflict with conflict. He crushes conflict with grace. He shows up in kindness, in favor, and he says, it's what, it's what Paul talks about in, in the book of Romans. He says, it is the kindness of God that brings you home. <laughs> when you see how kind he is, when you see how good he is, he brings you home. He says he shows up with grace. Remember years ago, one of my mentors and friends, he leads a really successful business, and one of the guys that he'd worked with for a long time, they kind of got at odds with each other. They had some conflict, and this guy that worked for him just kind of went, uh, kind of AWOL, went a little bit crazy, and so my buddy had to fire this guy from his position. And when that happened, it's like all hell broke loose. This guy thought, I'm gonna bring down the company, gonna bring down my friend, begin to slander his family. And so I remember one morning, I'm sitting there having breakfast with my friend, and I said, hey, how, how are you responding? What are you doing? He said, here's, here's my goal. And he says, I want to help him get uh, the best job he's ever, ever imagined. I wanna help him get a better job than the one I just fired him from. And I'm like, bro, what is wrong with you? Like, are you just trying to pass him off onto some other poor company? He said, no. He said, I'm gonna tell the truth to whoever hires him. He said, but Dave, when I stop and when I look at the, the brokenness in my own heart, and then when I think about how Jesus treated me when I was still his enemy, he said, this is one of the most tangible opportunities for me to display the gospel, to bear witness to the power in, in this place of conflict. And what I heard my friend doing in that moment was in this place of conflict, he was wrestling with his own battles. He was searching his own heart. He had his eyes fixed on Jesus and he's going, how do I pour out grace here? Because guys, when you look at Jesus, just think about how Jesus responded to his enemies. When, when his disciples were in the very process of getting ready to sell him out and abandon him, Jesus gets down and washes their feet. When Jesus is being arrested by the mob and one of his, his friends tries to stop the mob and cuts off the soldier's ear, what does Jesus do? Does he go, oh, it serves you right. No, he heals the guy. What does Jesus do when the soldiers were, were literally like gambling for his clothes? He's praying for their salvation. What, what does he do to um, the, the thieves that were being crucified alongside of him that were mocking him? He's leading them to salvation. What does he do to his mother that is grieving? He makes her arrangements. For after, it's just amazing. The more you press Jesus, the more the sweetness of God pours out. I go, can you imagine what would happen over the next three weeks if online and in person, as our country continues to boil over, as conflict continues to arise, if our culture went, man, the more you pushed on the church, the more you pushed on the Christian, the more the sweetness of God came out. What if all of a sudden we became the people who more than anybody else had the ability to see our, see our own brokenness? to keep our eyes focused on the kindness of God and then to turn and to see those that we see as our opponents, whoever they might be, to look at them and to shower them with jealous pursuit and the unending favor and grace of God. Guys, I'm telling you, it's a story that would begin to transform the people all around us.
See, James is gonna say, if you wanna live as a peacemaker, you gotta search your heart. If you wanna live as a peacemaker, you have to fix your eyes on Jesus. And if you wanna live as a peacemaker, you have to bend your knee in humility to God. We're gonna deal with this third one next week, but I just want you to see the end of verse six. He says, this is why the scriptures say that God opposes the proud. Man, we could talk into this a lot. I'm just telling you, you don't ever want to be in a place where God is opposing you. You don't wanna be in a place where God's opposing you. It says God opposes the proud. God opposes the person that looks at their enemy and elevates themselves above the enemy. God opposes the person that looks at the enemy and says, man, my opponent's so stupid. If only they were as smart as me. God opposes that pride, and he does what? He shows favor to the humble. Being humble doesn't mean you keep your mouth shut and you never share the truth. Being humble doesn't mean you don't say hard things. Being humble means you take a lower position. You entrust yourself to God when the whole world is shaking. And when that happens, we begin to live into the peacemaker. We begin to live as peacemakers, as Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will what? They become children of God. You are a child of God if you've been saved by Jesus, if you're filled by the Spirit of God. Guys, it's time for us to live like it. You've got three weeks to really live like it. Guys, watch what you say. But not just what you say, watch how you think. Watch how you feel and to put these things before the Lord so that you won't wreck your witness for the gospel. I'm seeing this all across our city, all across the nation online. Followers of Jesus, almost every day, you are wrecking, we are wrecking our witness. On both sides of the aisle, don't try to read through the language. Where's Dave? I'm going, on both sides of the aisle, in pride, we are wrecking our witness. So let's search our hearts. We're gonna end today a little differently than we normally do. Normally, this is the moment where we jump right into communion and we do some songs when we leave. We're actually gonna go right into worship. We're gonna fix our eyes on God. As, as they sing these songs, maybe you sing along, maybe you just sit and listen, maybe you journal. But before you reflect on your heart, take some time to just think about how God treats his enemies. Think about how Jesus treated you when you were distant from God. Man, it's amazing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then Brandon's gonna get up here and give us some, a few short family announcements and he's gonna lead us into communion and we're gonna end our day with communion. We're gonna put some questions on the screen designed to help you search your heart. And you can take as long as you need in your at-home gatherings, in your house church, in your group of friends or family or on your own. You can take 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes at the end of the day just to reflect. Because we don't just wanna talk about being peacemakers. We don't just wanna affirm the idea of being peacemakers. We actually wanna be peacemakers in the midst of conflict. Father, I love you. I thank you so much for our church family. God, I thank you for your word that you spoke to us through your half-brother James, where we thank you for this good letter from a trusted friend in the midst of a difficult time. And God, would you speak to each of us however you wanna to speak to us this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks, amen.